0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, 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 welcome Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Special rapporteur David Johnston resigns. And half of people in Canada said, good, and the other half said, expected it. Michael Cooper is the Conservative Party of Canada's Shadow Minister for Democratic Renewal and member of the Parliamentary Procedures Committee. He's an MP in Edmonton and quizzed Mr. Johnson. Mr. Cooper, when, when you heard of the resignation, I mean, I'm sure you saw it coming before we heard, any surprise to you?
1: Uh, well, first of all, good afternoon, Roy. Hi. And uh, the, the bottom line is, as you said, he should never have been appointed in the first place. He should never have accepted the role. of Prime Minister created this fake rapporteur position and uh, appointed a family friend and member of the Beijing-Compromised Crudeau Foundation, Mr. Johnson, to buy time and to whitewash the Prime Minister's cover-up of Beijing's interference in not one but two elections. And I'm glad that Mr. Johnson has finally recognized uh, that he cannot continue in parole, Uh, But with the greatest respect to Mr. Johnson, he should resign now, not at the end of June. And and the government uh, knows what it needs to do. It's what Parliament has asked the government to do, not once but three times, and that is to call an immediate, independent public inquiry led by someone who isn't in a conflict uh, like Mr. Johnson is. Uh,
0: When you questioned uh, Mr. Johnson, did he seem determined to remain? Did you get a sense that he wasn't going anywhere?
1: The sense that I got from Mr. Johnson is that he hadn't written his report. Okay. Uh, He uh, seemed at times confused. Uh, He was unable to defend uh, aspects of his report, key findings, and uh, it certainly didn't inspire confidence uh, in the report.
0: So I was about to ask. Sorry, go ahead.
1: uh, I said after three hours of of questioning.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was about to ask you whether you believe that Mr. Johnston was coached into what his conclusions concerning China's interference in Canada should be. So so they, they arrived at the, uh, the conclusion and then they asked the questions.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it was really uh, on, on key questions. You know, for example, I asked him to explain how it is uh, that he concluded that there was no evidence that Beijing attacked our democracy in two elections and targeted the Conservative Party in an orchestrated campaign in the 2021 election, even though Aaron O'Toole had been briefed by CSIS that that is precisely what happened. And in answer, he simply said, well, it was based upon the information that he had at the time. So one of three things are possible. Uh, either he uh, omitted material information, he misinterpreted it, or this government withheld it from him. Uh, neither scenario was acceptable.
0: Yeah. Seemed uh, a bit desperate to me in Parliament when uh, Mr. Medicino and other Liberal MPs and ministers and parliamentary secretaries kept bringing up Stephen Harper having appointed David Johnston as Governor General. I mean, it's not like David Johnston had a, a long association with the Harper family and was a major player in any Harper foundation it just it just looks to me it sounded to me um, um, mr cooper that they've they've run out of territory and they ran out of territory long before yesterday
1: well it seems like this government doesn't understand what a conflict of interest is that's the issue with mr johnson it's not that he is a, it's not that he isn't a person of integrity who has served Canada, it's a fact that he's a Trudeau family friend, a member of the Beijing-funded and financed uh, and compromised Trudeau Foundation. And uh, on that basis, he should never have been appointed. Uh, It was completely inappropriate. And... And and with with Mr. Johnson, since then, there have been conflicts everywhere. Not only is he a family friend of the Prime Minister, but he went out and hired a team of liberals to write and defend the conclusions of his report, including appointing Sheila Block as his chief counsel, who is a big liberal donor who attended recently a liberal fundraiser with the Prime Minister and uh, the Minister of National Defense. Uh, If this process is truly independent, then there shouldn't be a bunch of partisan liberals gathering evidence, interviewing witnesses, and having a role in drafting conclusions. it's
0: It's a tutorial on how not to do it. Precisely. And then we had both Mr. Johnston and the former liberal MP, he was investigating, hire the same crisis management team. How does that happen?
1: How does that happen Uh, is right. I mean, just another conflict on top of conflict on top of conflict. And with respect to the findings in Mr. Johnson's report, he essentially exonerated the members for Don Valley North, even though he conceded that there were irregularities with the nomination process involving uh, foreign students being bussed in. Uh, that resulted in an emergency CSIS briefing to the Prime Minister two days before the nomination cutoff in the 2019 election, and yet he concluded that the member for Don Valley North was unaware or that he could find no evidence that the member was aware of such irregularities, and yet he didn't even bother to interview the member for Don Valley North. It just is another example of why this report is a total uh, sham and... uh, what is needed is an immediate, independent public inquiry. It's time for Justin Trudeau to stop the cover-up and get on with
0: it. So, so what does happen next? What does happen now as the prime minister continues to tread water? I mean, how, what do you expect? What do you see?
1: Well, I, I don't know what to, to, what to expect. I mean, Dominic LeBlanc today uh, basically, in some respects, doubled down and uh, didn't commit to an independent public inquiry. That's what we need, and Parliament has uh, demanded it three times, and uh, this Prime Minister has fummed his nose at Parliament and continues to do so.
0: Do opposition parties have the clout? I know you voted already on this, but do, uh, do opposition parties have the clout to push Mr. Trudeau into approving a, uh, a public inquiry? Can you, cre- can you create the dynamic where he'll say, okay, I can deal with that, I can live with that, or do you want to?
1: An overwhelming percentage of Canadians want a public inquiry. Parliament has demanded one three times, and the Prime Minister hasn't acted on that. And the reason I believe he hasn't is because he has something to hide. He turned a blind eye to Beijing's interference and has used every trick in the book to try to cover it up, including appointing a fake rapporteur who had conflict after conflict. Most people have
0: no idea what the word rapporteur means.
1: Well... That's right. Uh, I wonder if the Prime Minister even does.
0: So um, the NDP, though, even though they support the public inquiry call, and in some ways I got out in front and led with the the call for the public inquiry uh, with Mr. Johnston, but they will not end their support agreement of the Liberals in Parliament. I spoke with Mr. Singh on the 4th of March and pushed him pretty hard on it, and uh, he he was having none of it.
1: Yeah, and the NDP— are responsible in that sense for propping up this government. uh, And throughout the process, the NDP has not been consistent. They like to have it both ways. On the one hand, they claim that uh, they want an independent public inquiry, but at, at the same time, on many occasions, they've actually worked with the liberals to impede the work of, for example, the Procedure and House Affairs Committee in getting answers that Canadians deserve.
0: So final question for you, do you believe there's actually going to be an independent public inquiry, or are we just going to be on the merry-go-round for quite some time yet?
1: Well, Pierre Polyev and Conservatives are going to continue to keep up the pressure on this government to finally do the right thing, and call an independ- independent public inquiry. And the notion that this somehow can't be done on the basis of national security issues is patently absurd. It has been done before, including the Air India Inquiry as well as the Arar Inquiry. Uh, it, both of those inquiries arguably had national security issues that were more sensitive uh, to this and so there's no reason why it shouldn't happen, and there's no reason why it should take an extended period of time to have uh, an inquiry and to get a, a final report so that Canadians can get the answers But the Prime Minister has been doing everything in his power to stop, to prevent Canadians from seeing.
0: Now, I still want to see a public inquiry into the SNC-Lablan situation and Jody Wilson-Raybould's interference by Trudeau, for which he was convicted by his personally selected ethics commissioner. But I... That's probably not going to happen.
1: The, the only, the first prime minister to have been found guilty twice of breaching the contract. Yeah, and
0: the and, and one time, he, one time he selected his own ethics commissioner, which was in violation of the parliamentary law. Homelessness in Canada, the growing fear and the reality of homelessness. Homeowners facing major mortgage increases. If you have a variable mortgage, the. Um, Interest rate, Bank of Canada interest rate just went to 4.75%. Rents are hugely more expensive, and rental properties are dwindling in number. Tim Richter is the founder and CEO of the Canadian Association, Association rather, to End Homelessness. And uh, he joins us on The Roy Green Show. Tim, thank you for taking the time. Is the issue becoming more difficult? Is it become homelessness becoming more of a national concern than it might have been the last time you and I talked?
2: Yeah, you know, Roy, uh, good afternoon. Great to to be here. I'm glad to be able to chat with you about this. Yeah, you know, uh, there's some new data since the last time we chatted. New federal government data shows that uh, homelessness has increased between 2018 and 2022 by about 12%, which means 263,000 Canadians will experience homelessness this year, at least. And I think that's probably an underestimate. And, you know, to put that into context, as we watch wildfires rav- ravaging the countryside in, in in Canada, that that number is uh, actually bigger than the biggest natural disasters in Canadian history. Yeah, well, so the same, you know, the number of people being ha- unhoused is equivalent to our largest natural disasters, and there's there's not the commensurate
0: reaction to it. Yeah, we'll talk wildfires later on the program today. By the way, so is it possible? That Peter, who's been living in his car for four weeks, owned his own business, and during COVID, things went south, he lost the business. He's 60 plus, trying to find work. We may have been able to connect him with a prospective employer, I'm not sure yet. But is it possible that Peter and Bill, who'll be joining us from British Columbia, he and his wife are both working. They're living in their car, have been living in their car for a year and a half, they just can't make the connections between their personal economy and how much it's going to cost to get a place to live. Is it possible that that, that Peter and Bill fall through the cracks and really aren't defined as being homeless?
2: Yeah. Well, a lot of uh, a lot of people who experience homelessness don't touch systems. You know, they're they're like uh, those two gentlemen that you referred to who are uh, making you know doing their best to keep their heads above water, but don't, you know, they don't enter the shelter system. They don't contact uh, some of the mainstream services. And, and you know, what you're seeing here is really just the cost of rent being just too high. These, these folks are working and yeah. they're working hard and they're doing their best. And, um, you know, rent has gone up in a lot of communities over 30% year over year. Like
0: yeah. that's not, not sustainable. I'm getting emails, received emails over the past few days from people who are living exactly that way. They sent emails we're not like Peter living in our cars yet but we're close and if our rent goes up another 3 4 or 500, dollars we will have no choice but to move in with our families if we can, couch surf if we have to or live in our vehicles if that's the only other resort because we cannot afford with the cost of living increases and the interest rate increases, we cannot afford to maintain our rental property. I've also heard from home homeowners, um, Tim, who have said essentially the same thing: our, um, our 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 mortgages have gone up so massively, we don't know how to live here anymore. Mm-hmm. But maybe at least they have some equity in their homes, potentially.
2: Yeah, well, and and you know, you've heard of trickle down economics, so this is trickle down misery, right? As yeah. Yeah. As more people can't afford their mortgages, there you know, some will some may lose their homes or be forced to go into the rental market. Those that means there's more people in a rental market that is shrinking, right. Not growing in many ways. Canada needs one point seven four million units of uh rental housing uh, in the next ten years to restore affordability. In the last thirty years, Canada's only built five hundred and thirty thousand units. I mean you know, we, we have a, a huge problem, and as more people go into the rental market, the people who uh, have less ability to pay more get pushed out the bottom, right, and end up living in the cars.
0: So, what eases the pressure? Do we have to count on interest rates coming down, on inflation slowing down, and and uh, and uh, and uh, becoming lesser? Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that what we have to wait for, or is there opportunity? And I don't like to look to governments for solutions for everything, but is there opportunity for governments to step in and at least provide some? Well, make it make it so that people don't have to make the decisions they're making in twenty
2: twenty three. Yeah, well, governments absolutely have to step in in this circumstance, but governments alone can't do it. Right, the scale. Of, so there's there's two things. One. We have to deal with the crisis in front of us. In the short term, you know there's governments can provide rent relief to individuals who are at risk, and that would prevent their homelessness, prevent them from getting pushed out of the rental market into their cars and onto the streets, right? The United States, the Biden administration, has kept eviction eviction rates in the US at pre-pandemic levels by doing exactly that. We called on the federal government to create a homelessness prevention, and housing benefit in the last budget, which which they didn't, but that would prevent or stop or slow this wave of new homelessness we're seeing. But in the long run, we need to build more housing. We need to build a lot more rental housing, and we need the private sector and the government engaged, right? And, um, you know, Canada has in the past built a lot of rental housing, um, but is not doing so today.
0: Why not? Why, Why isn't it happening?
2: Well, in the it, it's in the in the seventies and eighties, the federal government uh, had measures like accelerated capital cost allowance that incented private sector construction of rental housing, much of which is what people are living in today. They built two hundred thousand units in in about uh, eight years under a program called the MERB program. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that ended in the eighties; uh, they stopped building affordable housing. And, you know, the economy grew and the housing didn't keep up, right? And so now we're in a situation we have a dire lack of, of housing. So, you know, we got to find a way to keep people in their homes. We need to find a way to build more and find a way for, to keep the problem from getting worse. We're actually losing rental, affordable rental housing faster than we're building it in Canada.
0: Tim, how can our uh, listeners reach the Canadian Association to End Homelessness? How do they reach you?
2: Yep. Uh, Our website is caeh.ca. Check that out and and you can reach out to us anytime. But, you know, the best thing your listeners can do right now is call their members of parliament, demand that the federal government take some action, demand that the provincial governments take some action, because they're all standing around watching this thing unfold, like watching the wildfires and
0: doing nothing about it. There's national outrage in this country, and you're aware of it, clearly over the moving of Paul Bernardo from Millhaven Maximum Security Prison in Ontario to a medium-security institution in Quebec where mainly sex offenders are incarcerated. It's, it's a very disturbing situation, and it's not one we haven't seen before. This was happening in the early 90s, and then public anger over the justice system required the government to make changes, the situation now is, and Scott Newark has told us this, is sliding back. We're going to be speaking with Tim Danson, the lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families later this hour, about the uh, Bernardo situation, but we're going to speak now with Don Edwards. And if you recognize Don's name, he's a former NHL star goaltender with the Buffalo Sabres, the Calgary Flames. Toronto Maple Leafs and Team Canada, and he's writing a memoir with the working title After the Game Victim of Violence. Don Edwards' parents were brutally murdered by George Lovey in 1991 in Hamilton. I remember it very well. I got to know the Edwards family then, and we stayed in touch. Lovey was sentenced to 25 years in prison prior to parole eligibility. Well, in 2013, the parole board extended day parole to Levy, and now Levy's permitted four nights a week. That's the last report I had. Four nights a week at his own apartment, and Don Edwards and his family fear that full parole is next for Levy, who they fought relentlessly against being released. They they fear Don Levy, and he's threatened the Edwards family, and he's repeatedly, by the way, been assessed as a continuing threat to reoffend. But the parole board, I guess they know best. Don, how are you? I'm great, Roy. So
3: great to hear from you after your health care. I'm glad you're back on the air.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Don. Uh, I, I intentionally stayed away from describing what Lovey did and when he did it on that day. Um, those of us in, were in Hamilton at the time and and got to know you and, and your family, remember well. How much, uh, how, how would you describe that day and what George Lovey brought to the Edwards family, the disaster he delivered to your family.
3: Well, it just wasn't that day, Roy. It was the days leading up to that day. As you know, um, my sister Michelle was raped and sexually assaulted um, about a month before that occurrence. And he was let out by the Justice of the Peace on the condition he stay away from Michelle and the Edwards family. That never happened. Uh, he violated that condition and uh and then all of a sudden on that dreadful day um you know i get a phone call uh, at about five to eight in the morning from my brother-in-law terry smith uh, notifying me that my mother and father had birth.
0: so let's fast forward to today we'll we'll move around a, a bit here don if you're okay with that what is Lovey's status now? What is he is it is it still the 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 four nights in his own apartment that the parole board has decided he has somehow earned?
3: Well, the parole board is now granting him conditions that he's able to go and visit certain regions. He just recently received permission to um, go to uh, Branford, which was an area that we um, highly attested, as you know, yeah. for people from the Hamilton area. Um, I played my minor hockey, met with our family who, you know, raised family in the Caledonia area. Um, my wife is from Caledonia and, uh, as you know, Brantford is virtually, you know, a 10 minute drive away. Um, just recently he received permission to go to Ottawa. So he's receiving more and more permission to, um, venture away from Sudbury where he's been, you know, received April. And, um, they slowly begin to drop the curtain and unsuspecting to us, um, they're granting him more and more leeway, which is a great concern to us. He's asked to go to Hamilton. He's asked to go to Grimsby, which is, you know, right next door to us. Um, my sisters, um, he is a threat to us. There's no doubt about it. This all started in 2011, his first parole board hearing. Another time in which, um, as you know, in the trial is a murder trial that he refused to take the stand after being, um, uh, you know, uh, cross-examined by Alexander Paparelli, the um, assistant crown attorney in Hamilton. And uh, he was only interviewed by her for about 30, 35 minutes. We broke for lunch. He refused to take the stand. We came back from lunch. This set Canadian history. And then we go to our first parole board board hearing in in 2011 in Gravenhurst. And uh, once again, we read our victim impact statements. We got done that and he refused to come back into the parole board hearing. So um, it's quite, uh, we've documented it quite uh, literally um, many, many times that he manipulated the parole board of Canada he manipulated Corrections Canada on his uh, rehabilitation. And uh, we really believe that the manipulation of the Corrections Canada and the Pro Board of Canada continues.
0: He, he has also continued to threaten your family, yes?
3: Uh, to some degree, um, just by the areas he wants to come and go to visit. Um, you know, the parole Board of Canada is very vague on the reasons why he wants to go to those regions. But uh, at the same time, it's in our backyard, and to us it's a threat.
0: Don, when you, uh, when you and your family attend uh, the parole board hearings and you you uh, have your victim's impact statement, which you have to present to the parole board prior to reading it um, at the hearing, and the parole board has told you that they, they were too long, and some of what you had written. These are your victim's impact statements, victim's and impact statements from your wife, Tanis, and from other members of your family, Jesse and Terry and, and others, um, the, too long and uh, you have to take certain things out because, well, because they, they're considered to be too challenging. How, how does that make you feel? Does that make you feel like like you're just along for the ride? Here you are, the ve- the victims of Lovey, and he's getting all these considerations from the parole board.
3: He gets every consideration, Roy. The sad thing about this all is that, you know, we – bleed our hearts in writing the statements to begin with. Mm-hmm. And it, it's very difficult. Many of us struggle from post-traumatic stress disorder from the uh, incident of March 21st, uh, 1991. Yeah. And before that, with my sister, especially. Um, so when we write these things, they're very tough. But we write them from our heart. Uh, they're not something passive. Uh, they're very uh, uh, straight on. And many times the parole board of Canada have come back to us and said, you have to modify them. They strike things that we can't read, uh, but uh, at the same time, as we do that, the fight not only is with Lovey, the fight is also with the Pro Board of Canada because it's a uh, very liberal uh, Pro Board, and for the most part, it's like they want to move any uh, serious or convicted felon of, of danger to society back into society and at the society's um, fear and uh, concern. So. We, in many ways, we, as you know, we've been fighting for many, many years. The fight doesn't go away. I'm sure at some point, um, you know, we'll have to be at another parole board hearing to be able to do one last time because it seems like the parole board is really moving this along to give him 100% freedom.
0: Don, I, I have in front of me correspondence that was sent to your family by the parole board. August twentieth, two thousand nineteen. Email that was sent to you, two pages long, telling you what was wrong with your victim's impact statement. Two pages. It's 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 outrageous, and and Uh, uh, it's absolutely outrageous. It's your victim's impact statement, and here's the Parole Board of Canada delivering a two-page letter to you, telling you what's wrong with your victim's impact statement. You can't say this. You can't say that. It's too long. Well, thank you, by the way, for your revised, shorter version. And we can add in brackets, if you hadn't done that, we would have done it for you.
3: It's it's it's, um, it, it's like we they put handcuffs and uh, muzzles on us uh, to uh, quiet ourselves. The problem is with that, Roy, it's real simple, is that uh, um, they want to just go away. They seem to want to move uh, serious offenders along in the uh, system. And uh, the bottom line is real simple, is that uh, the... The the, um, the scales have uh, are in balance now. We uh, have lost many rights. We don't have the freedom of speech that we should. Um, for the pro board to be telling us what we should be saying is totally wrong. You must imagine, and when I say this, is that you know there's tremendous anger in our family as well as with any uh, family that has been a victim of violence. I mean the struggles we've gone through the devastation in our lives that we've had to overcome the battles we've had in overcoming um, issues with our medical with our personal medical history um, both physical and mental and yet they seem to want to uh, restrain us from uh, speaking openly about that and uh, it really becomes a situation that our um, words of our victim impact statements fall on deaf ears yeah
0: uh, the 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 story that was done. There was a story written uh, Sean Fine, What a good, great piece uh, about about you, Don, earlier in the year in the Globe and Mail. And and in it you uh, you talked about you were so proud to wear the Team Canada sweater. But after what's been going on with Lovey and the parole board and how you and, you and your family have been treated, it
3: it sours that that good feeling. Yes,
0: does it, does it? Is that how you feel?
3: Absolutely, Roy. You got to understand too that. With Team Canada, you know, uh, I was picked to play for Team Canada. And then when it got to the cutdown, I was released, uh, one of the last three releases. And then when Billy Smith got hurt, I was called back. I went back and I played the semifinal game against Russians. And when they played the national anthem, in the Montreal Forum, um, standing in front of the creases, I always did. I had tears coming down because I was so proud to represent Canada, but most importantly for the... All the sacrifices my mother and father and my family, my family had given to me to allow me to do that. But, uh, you know, that quickly changed in 1991 when we began to, you know, truthfully learn the real justice in Canada. Um, It impacted our family far beyond anyone could ever imagine. And uh, it really left a bitter taste in my mouth.
0: So the justice system, as you know better than most, will argue that uh, release programs for violent individuals are required. I've heard that a thousand times and more, including murderers like Levy. And I have great concern that Bernardo, by being moved from Millhaven to this medium-security prison in Quebec, where it's difficult to get information because, well, it's just hard to get information out of Quebec, Uh, I just worry that that's a step-down program for, for Bernardo. But they'll argue that the release programs for violent individuals including murderers, including Lovey, are carefully supervised, and it's all done incrementally. I'm sure they made that argument to you.
3: Um, I would say that's bullshit, Roy. And the bottom line is real simple, is that when uh, Lovey was given some day passes to visit some areas, whether it be family or whatever else may be, um, that was supposed to be be wearing ankle uh, bracelets to know where he was, but we quickly found out, as my sister Jessie did, because she's been on top of this, is that the police department in Brantford did not have a, a division. In fact, because of their non-funding or lack of funding, they were not able to track anybody uh, in the town of Brantford anymore. And that very much is the same thing in the town of Hamilton, now the city of Hamilton. Um, you know, they've lost a lot of their funding um, through government uh, cutbacks. So yeah, they might be wearing ink bracelets, but the police forces in particular cities that have lost the funding or had to cut funding, uh, really do not know where they are.
0: Don, is there a, is there a, a date, do you have an idea of a date for the publication of your book?
3: Um, I'm trying to, work. you know, Roy, it's very tough for me. I've, you know, I've got about 60% of it done now. Um, it's very hard for me because I write and then I have to take a break. Yeah. Uh, because my post-traumatic stress disorder takes over a little bit. Of I course. To, you know, yeah. I start... You know, it bothers me for a day or two, and I have to step back to really grab myself. You know, I've struggled with it since '91, um, uh, and I was di- diagnosed with it shortly thereafter. Uh, the murders. Um, the bottom line is real simple: is it, it's not an easy book to write, but I plan to pursue it and finish it. I plan, hopefully, in the next year, that it will be done. It's graphic. It's it's to the point. It's from my heart. There's no hiding facts. Um, it's hardcore, um, situations that we experienced, uh, what we went through. Um, you know, it's just something that, you know, when you look at the French family, the happy family, whatever, which my sister has said on their boards. And as you did as well, um, victim violence for this, uh, for the most part, all share the same values, uh, the same care, um, concerns, um, they also, um, bolster and try and support each other in the best ways they can because they, you know, the devastation each family experiences, everybody is a little different, but it's many ways the same. And the the bottom line is real simple is that uh, the pain has never gone away from us. It never will. Um, We lost, uh, you know, I lost two great parents, my grand, my children lost two great grandparents or uh, grandparents. And, uh, you know, just two wonderful people in the community that just dedicated their heart to helping others. The issue of wildfires,
0: and over the last days particularly, in various centers across North America, we've seen the, uh, the smoke and the haze over cities um, in many areas of the United States, and in many areas of Canada. It was, uh, it was a real challenge, health challenge, to be outside because of the content of the wildfire smoke. Some people took it seriously. Other people just shrugged. Professor Michael Mehta joins us, geography and environmental studies professor at Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops, British Columbia on wildfires in this country. Public perception of risk, air quality and health, disaster preparedness and lessons learned from previous wildfires. Professor Mehta, thank you very much for the time. Do we even know what the lesson is we should be learning?
4: Well, I think we do, Roy. You know, Western Canada and the Western United States has been going through a lot of these things for uh, almost 10 years now, and it's just cascading uh, up to other parts of the, uh, the continent and, of course, around the world. And I think one of the main lessons that we're going to learn, and we can unpack this if you like, is that uh, in the past, uh, disasters, natural hazards were very localized. Now they're on a much larger scale, and that has some significant implications. So That's the first lesson.
0: So, so talk to us, please, about what the, the dangers, the really clear and evident dangers are of the smoke from wildfires that people need to be aware of and need to prepare for.
4: Well, wildfire smoke is very similar to the kind of smoke that you get if you sit around and smoke a smoky campfire. You might have heard that analogy before. It's very cigarette similar to the composition of cigarettes. And of course it's very similar to diesel emissions. And the well known toxicological characteristics with that smoke. Cancer, lung disease, heart disease, strokes, reproductive impacts on um, developing fetuses. I mean, the list is is extensive. It's the number one environmental health hazard on the planet. Uh, World Health Organization estimates that about 7 million people around the world died every year. In the past, a lot of those people were in the developing world. Uh, That is shifting to the developed world as we uh, have seen uh, mortality rates and cancer rates increase from these kinds of things in countries like Canada.
0: So we we might have adopted a an out of sight out of mind attitude, but it's it was difficult, impossible really, to uh, have it out of sight. I mean, we may not have seen it in front of our own eyes, but we saw it on our screens, whether it be television or whether it be our our uh, tech screens. Um, so it's really it's a it's a it's a real deal. How does this year compare to previous years? Well, if you
4: look at it on a North American wide level, it, it, it's considerably uh, more extensive. Uh, there's a lot of pollution, obviously, uh, across much of the continent at this point. Uh, if you zoom into particular regions, if you look at Alberta, northern Alberta, northern British Columbia, the levels have been very high, uh, probably two to three times we could see on a so-called red alert day in Beijing, mm-hmm. and that's been the case for many weeks in a row. And if all trends uh, are, are, are indicative of what's going to happen, I think we're going to have um, this kind of pattern throughout the summer. It's going to ebb and flow in many different parts. So we, we, we're in a new territory here in many respects, North America.
0: So there are people in this country, across this country, who uh, ignored the warnings or weren't able to heed the warnings because of what they have to do for a living, perhaps, who are going to be sick, maybe sick now, because of what they well, what they breathed in. Yeah, a lot of them are going to have short-term um, sort of acute uh,
4: effects. Uh, some of those effects will be temporary, some of them won't. The, uh, the sad thing about these exposures is that, is that they're lifetime cumulative. The body is unable to eliminate completely. A lot of the very small particles, uh, the so-called PM 25 size particles that are in these you know, wood smoke uh, products, and as a result, they, they build up in organ systems, they build up in the brain, and they do a lot of damage. They create some genetic damage as well. So it's, uh, it may not be obvious to you today that you know, today, but, you know you, this is something that will affect you, but the more it happens, the more likely you are to develop things like COPD and heart disease going forward. It can lead to hardening of the arteries, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, kidney disease. Uh, lots of research done on type two diabetes and air pollution all around the world. So yes.
0: Uh, final thing. Then we have a lot of people listening to us across this country. What's what do they need to keep in mind so this happens again, or or the current wildfires create another? you know, major smoke issue that hasn't gone away completely. Uh, what, what, what do people need to keep in mind, most fundamentally?
4: They can't trust their senses necessarily. Uh, it may smell clean and it may look clear, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the case. You have to rely upon sensor networks. They're the only true, valid way to detect these sorts of things. One of the sensor networks that I uh, have set up in BC, but it's also global, is one called Purple Air. And you'll find Purple Air has uh, a lot of very sort of high-resolution local sensors around the country. Uh, So you'll be able to zoom in on specifically what's happening in your area. It'll give you a color code of the risk. And, you know, you need to stay indoors, unfortunately, or you have to wear one of these N95 masks. know a lot of people don't like that idea, but it is the front line of defense. And, of course, for your indoor air quality, because a lot of that pollution will come inside anyway, HEPA filtration is your
0: first line of defense.